This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. Of all the arguments against assisted dying, the most heartless I've heard is this. Choice or autonomy, you already have a choice. Suicide's legal. Um, Why do you need assistance to do something that you can do yourself? That's Kevin Newell, a British academic, effectively saying, suicide's legal. What's stopping you? This from a man who, like his approving audience at the anti-euthanasia conference he was addressing, claimed to be protecting the vulnerable. Every time I heard that thought expressed, and I heard it more than once while making this podcast, I was astonished at the ease with which those who said it managed to completely overlook the suffering of the people they were talking about. Today we're going to meet one of those people and find out why he hopes for a law that will give him a choice about ending his suffering based on compassion rather than indifference. This is Laurie's story. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Perfect Of eugenic impulse. evaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control me. The police are obliged to charge me. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton, and you're listening to Better Off Dead. Every inch of Laurie and Rebecca Daniels' kitchen, from the Bakelite radio to the enamel and chrome supermatic stove, is lovingly recreated from the 1940s and 50s. Becky, uh, her thing is the 1940s and 50s, and uh, so when we had the opportunity to build the house... Uh, It was just a bit of romantic whimsy, I guess. I had to design all the kitchen cabinetry and we found a cabinet maker who could actually get his head around building from that area. Uh You know, I found the old 50s press button catches and just a few elements sort of came together. Rebecca, who Laurie built the kitchen for, has a 1940s hairstyle and wardrobe to go with it. All my clothes are vintage. never quite feels the same if it isn't the true um, article. Um, Yes, just something that started when I was a teenager and uh, it's a face I never grew out of. From their kitchen window, Laurie and Rebecca can see kangaroos in their backyard and the sun hitting the escarpment that marks the western edge of the Blue Mountains. It's the Australian landscape at its most beautiful. Uh, Well, it's funny, when I was a young man, I'd seen this exhibition called Golden Summers and it was the... um, Australian um, artists, uh, uh, guys like Arthur Street and, and uh, Fred McCubbin, and there were these amazing landscapes and this incredible light. I thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice to live in one of those paintings? Laurie and Rebecca met 26 years ago as flatmates. 
All I knew was that the, the man in the house was a biker who smoked cigars. So I thought, ooh, no, I don't know about this. Anyway, I met him and, of course, he was the loveliest person ever and he wasn't really a biker who smoked cigars. He smoked Gedangarams, the... The Critic. Oh, oh the, yeah, um, oh, the Clove Cigarettes. cigarettes yeah, yes. yes. Well, you were um, never going to lose him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice smell. Um, I was actually out here from England on a two-year visa and that was sort of coming up to, to the end of the two years and Laurie thought, well, I think I have to ask her out before she goes. So I thought, oh, why do people do that? You know, <laughs> you're friends, everything's nice, and then you get asked out. And um, I'm glad he did. How long have you been thinking, I should ask this woman out? <laughs> oh, for quite a while. You know, um, I've been waiting for a lady, obviously, sets your heart on fire and makes, makes your pulse race. Um, but, you know, someone you can admire and respect. And, yeah, Becky was just always very ad- an admirable person, always has been, and... Uh, what were the chances of that woman moving into the house you were in? I mean, uh, you, are, you got the lottery. You know, the thing about share houses is uh, they, they generally tend to fall apart once you start labelling things in the fridge. <laughs> and yes. um, we just got along so well. <laughs> and I thought if we can live in a share house together, perhaps we could spend the rest of our lives together. Two years after meeting, Laurie and Rebecca got married. But in 2009, everything changed. I was diagnosed on my birthday in 2009. Hell of a birthday present. Laurie was 44. The diagnosis was multiple sclerosis. I I knew what it meant because um, I had an uncle that that was lost to MS. Is that a moment that just stops you dead? The problem with MS is there's there's no known cause or cure, you know. It's, it's been identified as a disease for well over 100 years. There's been billions of dollars spent in research and we just really know further forward and that's what's scary. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a terrifying experience um, and you've just got to, you're just an ordinary person with no special qualities and you've just got to try and deal with it. In 2013, Laurie's illness began to worsen. Can you... Take me inside what it means to your day-to-day life when a disease like this accelerates. Mm. Well, well, I'd sort of been battling on and I was, I was able to get up in the morning and groom myself, uh, put on my clothes, go to work, do a day's work um, with enormous difficulty, uh, drive a car, be a husband, be a father. I couldn't do the wonderful things that I'd hoped to do with my kids growing up, so... You know, Darcy, for example, loves camping. She's a real outdoorsy sort of girl. and um, I would have loved to have done all that stuff with her, but I just couldn't do it. Why couldn't you do it? Because I, I don't understand the disease very well. Is it a physical incapacity? What is it? It's the physical incapacity. So um, from, from left foot drop, um, I then started to develop this incredible fatigue. So um, after a little bit of walking, um, I would no longer be able to move, uh, move my muscles. But eventually that fatigue just takes you over more and more. And, um, you know, sitting at a desk for seven to nine hours a day was just excruciating. And, and I just thought everyone experienced a level of pain, um, you know, doing that kind of work. And I quizzed my friends and they said, no, we don't, we don't feel pain sitting at the desk all day. And I was... 
I was in absolute agony. So where was the agony? Where was it? it was musculoskeletal. So it, was, um, it felt like my spine was on fire, all the muscles in my neck and, uh, and head, um, basically right down to uh, the base of the spine. Um, and then eventually I, I, just, I just couldn't walk. I couldn't do a full day's work. And so that was awful. I had to go through this, this terrible period of separation from work. I was shattered um, because I, I couldn't contribute anymore. And it, it wasn't just contributing by going to work. I couldn't do any of the things that a husband should, um, you know, to be part of that team. And suddenly Bex was doing everything. And I just felt... Terrible about all that. When you're the man you love, uh, he's lost something so important uh, above and beyond the pain. What is there that you can say? I really focused most on trying to stay positive and as happy as possible because that's one thing I could do for Laurie and for the children and, and, and focus on the small details, um, which I think often worried Laurie because I think he, he didn't see that I was looking ahead to the, the future catastrophe, as it were, um, and I'd sort of think, well, yes, I know that's there, but I'm dealing with this right now. What in your head is the future catastrophe? What does that look like? Um, well, I'm, I'm worried that I'm, I'm going to go the way of my poor uncle, you know, who um, became bedridden, um, he went off to hospital and then he, he got pneumonia and he basically drowned, you know, um, in, his, in his lung fluid. And I think, you know, there's, a, there's so many dimensions to him this uh, and it, it takes things away from you bit by bit. Particularly, I, I was a very active man. So, you know, my thing was, um, you know, gardening and um, home development and all that sort of thing. I just can't do that. You know, for example, neuropathic pain is, it's, it's not like normal pain. It's pain that arises in the central nervous system, in the brain or the spinal cord, peripheral nerves. And it's, you know, you can get burning or tingling or numbness. So, so my fingers, I'm sitting here and I'm, you just, you, you want to scream inside because um, of what's happening in your hands. But You've got to carry on a normal conversation and you can't be screaming all day long, you know. Um, You're feeling that now, as we're speaking? Yeah, it never lets up, not for one second. And the only time it does is when you're asleep. Other things you get, uh, sometimes it's like a bruised sensation in your muscles, like, like you've been cooked. Um, or you get the sensation like uh, little ants crawling through your skin and muscles. Um, and it's, it's just, it's really horrible. Um, and it, yeah, it doesn't let up and there's, there's nothing you can take for it. Like, they can give you these drugs, um, but often, you know, the, the cure, I mean, there's no cure, but the medication can be worse than the disease sometimes because there's so many bad side effects to the medications they give you. The pain you were describing, which you're feeling as we speak, mm -hmm. How do you keep your equilibrium if that is an absolutely constant drumbeat in your day? You have to deal with the unthinkable. <laughs> you just have to live with it every day. Laurie and Rebecca have two children under the age of 14, Bert and Darcy. 
How have you explained this to the kids? Have you taken them into your confidence or are you trying to protect them from what's happening? Early on, um, there was obviously something funny with the way Dad was walking and he couldn't do the things that he could before. Um, we just explained to them that there's no known causal cure. But we also explained that, you know, at the time, everyone's course of MS is different, like we've said, and, and we just didn't know how this was going to pan out, so don't worry about it. And no matter what happens, you know, we still love you. Becky, what is the hardest time for you with Laurie's disease? Trying to help him at his lowest moments um, when the pain is just so great and nothing is helping and and all of the symptoms um, have, have just worn him down and, and, and there's sort of despair. Because it's right at the centre of his system, isn't it? That's right, and it, it, that's, that's a very, very frightening thing. I mean, he doesn't have the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, with the, this, the ending of these symptoms and the, the tingling, the numbness, the burning. So I might give him a massage and, and I can tell he's thinking, this isn't going to do any good. And then if it does, this wonderful feeling of I did something, mm -hmm. you know, which you can't always get that feeling of achievement because you can't always make a difference. But you always hope that whatever you do, even if, if, you, even it, even if it takes off just a sliver of the level of, of pain, of discomfort, or if I can make him feel that he's not alone. I think that's... If nothing else, just that human presence, another human being, I'm here to, to share what I can, uh, is, that's what every human being wants, even in crisis. Mm -hmm. You put yeah. your finger right on it, because I was, I was going to say that often it's just being present, like she doesn't turn away, uh, she's got this tremendous courage, um, which I'm sure I wouldn't possess in the same circumstances. She doesn't, she's just present. And, uh, you know, I have to say, Andrew, one of the, the feelings you have is tremendous guilt. Uh, you know, this, this person that I absolutely adore, I've brought this into her life, you know. Um, I'm the cause of so much difficulty for her as well. And, uh, you know, I'd give anything to change that. As I looked at Laurie in his wheelchair, I struggled to shake the image of ants crawling through his skin and muscles. In a life of relentless suffering, I asked, what was the hardest time? Uh, waking up in the morning <laughs> and it, it all just hits you. Um, you wake up and you realize, you, you, you come back out of that oblivion of sleep and um, first of all, the pain hits you you remember who you are, you remember the circumstances of your life, and, you know, this is another day to face. Some days are a lot worse than others, and that's when you become despairing, and there's no rhyme or reason to it with MS, you know. Does desperation come with this a sense that I need to find a way out? It's like straws on the camel's back. It's like, okay, first of all, you, you can't walk a little bit then you can't, you know, you're walking with a limp, then you're walking with a walking stick, then you're walking painfully with a four-wheeled walker, 
then you're confined to a wheelchair. That produces in itself um, different kinds of pain because you're stuck in the same position all the time. So then you're dividing your time between a wheelchair and bed. You've lost so many things. You can't drive anymore. You can't go out. You're pretty much housebound. Uh, yeah, you get despairing. And, and there's this overlap pain and fatigue with everything. You don't want to die the way your uncle died. No. So what are the kind of options you believe are available to you or that you would like to be available to you? Um, I would like when the time comes um, to have a discussion with my family, obtain their understanding of where I'm at, what I'm feeling, why I think I'm ready to go. And if they're comfortable with it, um, I'd like to be able to end my life at a time of my own choosing. And preferably before things got so horrendous that um, I wasn't able to do it for myself. Do you have a sense of what that time would look like? Um, I think it's, it's different for everyone. For me, um, you know, I, I felt, I feel I've already lost so much and, and it, life is so difficult. Um, you know, that time might be now, but it, I, I really can't say. It, it depends on how bad things get and, and how you feel about it. I asked Laurie if he understood why sometimes people in his situation might consider taking matters into their own hands. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I've thought about that myself uh, many a time, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, the way the system is, we don't have a nice way of, of going. So if someone has reached that stage where it's preferable in their own mind for them to die rather than to continue living, and that's that's quite a point to reach because innately we have this fear of, of, of death. And I completely understand having lived, lived the experience why people reach that point, um, either in, in terminal illness or intolerable, chronic, psychological or physical um, distress. I had a senior doctor who works in palliative care mm -hmm. say to me the other day that people who suicide are so selfish. Mm -hmm. What's your view on that? Um, this is something I struggled with. Um, are they being... It depends on people's circumstances. Um, I think in some circumstances, perhaps a person is being selfish, but we don't know what it's like to walk in that person's... in those person's moccasins. And, you know, I don't think it's selfish if, if particularly, you know, people around you are struggling... Um, and you're causing them a lot of grief with, with, um, and trauma with, with what you're having to go through. Um, I mean, I've never heard a word of complaint from Becky and I'm sure she would nurse me to the bitter end, um, but I don't know what kind of stress and trauma, you know, emotionally I'm putting the family through either. And um, perhaps it can be a very generous act to uh, terminate your own life. Can I just say that I think the word selfish is very interesting because um, I, I'm actually 
not quite sure exactly what, what he means, that it's just all you're thinking about is yourself. I'm, I'm assuming that's, that's the context. But from my point of view, I think that the people around you, the, the family and friends or loved ones, who I think um, they're probably the ones who, who are who are going to be more likely to have selfish thoughts and, you know, basically, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay. I don't want my life without you. And I think that that is probably selfish when you consider that the person who has said, I've had enough and I, I can't take it anymore, um, has, has reached that point. One of the other words which is always thrown into this debate is burden. The vulnerable will be made to feel a burden. They will be pressured to end their lives. Well, it's, it's a question for the family, and this is where the selfishness comes into it, because I think with voluntary euthanasia, there will be a discussion with the family. This is not going to happen without the understanding, at least, of family members. I think it's going to be something that is decided amongst the team, amongst the tribe, amongst the family. So the idea that your ordinary GP is going to be put in a terrible moral dilemma is not going to happen. There will be people who, who work with the dying, as they do now, um, who will be specialists in this field, and they will have a discussion with you about why you want to end your life. And if there's any hint that you're ending your life because you feel you're a burden, I think that would start another chain of events because it's not about people ending their lives because they're a burden, it's because they, they've reached the end of their rope. What Laurie has just described is exactly how laws for assisted dying work overseas. There are multiple safeguards, including two doctors working independently of each other, to ensure that the patient's request is based on either terminal illness or unbearable and untreatable suffering. Being a burden on its own is not sufficient reason for someone to be helped to die. More than that, all other treatment options have to be canvassed. If the doctors aren't satisfied these criteria have been met, then they will look for other ways to help the patient. In the Netherlands, for example, two-thirds of all requests for euthanasia are declined. But in Australia, Laurie doesn't have that option. What's more frightening for you right now, dying or living? Um, probably living. Living is, is a very frightening experience. Yeah. Through MS, I've pretty much lost my fear of dying. Um, because sometimes, you know, I think there are things that are worse than, than death. <laughs> Bex, would you mind getting me a, um, a blanket off my bed? I'm to He's uncontrolled. Shremis. Just explain what, what you're feeling today. I can't thermoregulate, so um, uh, in the heat my nerves just shut down and, and in the cold, a similar thing. So mm. at the moment I'm just getting these uncontrollable tremors. And that's the other thing with MS, you know, there's, there's very little that you can do for yourself, particularly um, once you're in a chair. I guess one of the very few advantages is if you're a fan of Dr. Strangelove, you can do impersonations. And I should get the white cat too. Yes. <laughs> Today, little Hartley, tomorrow, the world. <laughs> I was disappointed when I came in that you didn't swing around and say, so we meet again. <laughs> yeah. 
Sitting in the kitchen Laurie built for Rebecca, their love and mutual respect for each other is powerfully clear. For Rebecca, this makes addressing the unthinkable even harder. And I have to say that the, the first few times that he would talk about this, I actually got, it was just like a wave of fear just goes through your body and, and a, a taste, I must say, in, in my mouth. And I suddenly thought, there's a phrase that the taste of fear that I'd never understood. Um, and that, would, that was quite strong at the start because, you know, it was that feeling of, no, no, don't, don't, don't think like that, don't talk like that, that's, you know, I don't, I don't want you to go. Um, but as we've talked about it more and, and you know, I've, I've understood more. Which must be very hard because you know absolutely what it means when he says that. It's not in giving up, it's a reality, another day. Yes, exactly. And it's very, very hard to reconnect someone with any elements of joy when they are in that much pain. And, and, and this sort of the, the playful, um, humorous lorry that I always knew often disappears, mm. you know. And, um, and it's wonderful when it, he resurfaces again. And, and sort of being the optimist that I am, I, you know, I immediately sort of think, oh, good, you're feeling a bit better and this is, this is a wonderful sign. But, yeah, at, underneath you, sort of, you are realising that it is a big, a big courageous effort on his part. Laurie said that when the, the time comes, he wants to have that discussion with the family. I presume you've already had the discussion between you. Yes. And like I said, you know, I'm, I may not... I wouldn't want it, but I would want him to be... I'd want him to do the right thing for himself um, and, and for his particular circumstance. And I think it's far better to be able to um, discuss it, you know, with family or friends and, and really talk it through and, and say goodbye. Mm. You know, if you were, you know, you have the option of of doing it peacefully, um, and 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 making it something that's actually could be quite beautiful. I mean, yes, sad, but um, but it could be something that's in in your control rather than losing all control and and having your final months or years in absolute misery. Overseas, I'd spoken with people who'd been with their loved ones when they'd been assisted to die. They described those deaths, at a time of the patient's choosing, only when the suffering was no longer bearable and with their families around them, as beautiful. I asked Laurie if he had a sense of what a beautiful death might be. Um, well, I suppose one that's quick and painless and, um, you know, ideally surrounded by... Uh, your loved ones, um, and you know, just being able to um, apologise for anything that you may have done wrong. If if someone harbours any grudges against you, to um, you know, ask for their forgiveness, um, uh, to tell people what you mean to them, and, and have them, you know, if they wish to say what you mean to them. Um, but but mainly just to be able to know that. When it's too much, you can go. 
Um, that's beautiful in itself, you know. Being generous enough as a country to say, well, we're not going to force you to stick around against your will. Opponents of assisted dying are fond of referring to those like Laurie as people who don't value their own lives, as if somehow, with the right support and encouragement, they can rise above their pain and indignity and find meaning in being alive. I asked Rebecca what she thought of the idea that Laurie doesn't value his own life. Yeah, I, I think that's missing the point because I think they value their past life, who they were um, previously. I think they value they value themselves to the degree that they they know that they're acutely aware of everything that they can't be. But I think um, there, there comes a, a, a point that when the realization is that you are being robbed constantly being eroded who you are and what you what you can do and um, I don't know, it's hard for me to say Laurie absolutely values who he can be and what he can be and what he can contribute the memory that the children will have of him he doesn't want to be you know as he put it you know broken down decrepit old <laughs> sort of old man who can't manage anything. He doesn't want to, that to be their experience of him. I put to Laurie the suggestion that perhaps he doesn't value his own life. Crikey, no, there's not a, there's not a suicidal bone in my body. Um, I, I'm married to the girl of my dreams. I've got two wonderful children. Um, I'm living in that uh, Heidelberg school painting. Um, house I designed myself, um, it's like life, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, but no, it's just, that's all I can say. There is a terrible irony that for a man without a suicidal bone in his body, Laurie has had to think long and hard about how he might one day bring an end to his suffering. What do you see as your options? Um, In the absence of voluntary euthanasia. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Well, they're pretty bleak. In order to terminate your life, you can't involve anyone else, so you've got to go. It's got to be lonely. You've got to go off and do it by yourself, um, and then you need to work out what you have to do to kill yourself. Um, we can't get hold of Nimbutel easily. Um, you'd have to go and download e-books and, and try and get drugs from overseas, and so a lot of people aren't in that position. Um, so then you've got to think, well, how, how do you kill yourself? So e- either there's the sudden um, trauma um, or you have to stop the blood flow to the brain in some way or you have to stop the airflow in some way. And um, unfortunately, to, to be certain, you have to do it, generally speaking, in a pretty violent way. Um, my brother-in-law works on the the motorways in England as an emergency response person. And he sees this all this time, these terrible ways that people end their lives, you know, um, 
you, your mind can go to terrible places and, and this is the reality. There's no easy way to kill yourself unless there is medical assistance. And in your case, even harder because you are physically capable of a very small range of things. So the single car accident is out. You know, if I, um, I was lining up gum trees along the side of the road that I thought I might be able to use, but, you know, I can't even drive a car anymore. Yeah, so it becomes even more difficult. Do you have a sense of helplessness about this? Yes, um, and anger too that we, still in this day and age, this just isn't a regular human right. The life-ending drug Nembatal may offer Laurie the best prospect of a merciful end at a time of his choosing, but it's illegal. This adds another dimension to an already excruciating dilemma. Well, you worry about the repercussions. If, if for example, um, you know you can't involve someone, she can't hand you the pills or she can't, you know, she can't help you in any way. Um, but you even wonder if, if you were to organise the Nembutal and you gather everyone around and you have the ceremony, um, would, is assisting a suicide not preventing suicide? Is, um, would they be in trouble because they didn't call an ambulance um, when I started? You just don't know the legal ramifications. And, you know, it's all right for you. You talk about selfishness. Well, that would be selfish. Um, if you, you're okay, you're, you're out of your suffering, but then you've created a whole range of problems um, for the family, which is um, perhaps expensive and traumatic. That the whole point is to avoid the trauma, <laughs> you know. And, and when you, you start thinking about suicide and, and it's going to be lonely, then you think, well, who's going to find the body? Who's going to have to, what condition will my body be in when it's found? Who's going to have to go to the morgue to identify it? What other people am I going to traumatise? Is it going to be the policeman who turns up or the fireman or the other emergency services? And it's just ghastly, you know, thinking through that process. Rebecca, have you thought through this process, the, the way Laurie just described it? Gosh, very difficult. Um, I suppose, yes, I'd, I'd, I'd be worried about the, the ramifications because um, knowing, knowing his thoughts and his wishes, that side of me would be saying, well, obviously I, I mustn't step in. But the part that sort of wants to help and, and, and do the right thing would be thinking, well, I have to call the ambulance or, you know, and, and then you're thinking, well, I don't want to... I don't want to then be charged, you know, if he's if he's gone, and I'm somehow charged with being, you know, a, an accessory or, or in in any way enabling him. Does that mean that I won't then be able to be the mother I have to be to our two children? And then also, how do you then say to them, yes, oh, by the way, yes, I'm. I knew this was going to happen and I didn't do anything. How's that going to affect them? Are they going to blame me for the rest of their lives? But, but I, that, from what you're saying, though, you would definitely have had the family conversation before anything like that would happen. Yes, I think if, yes. Well, this is where if it was a, a 
properly sanctioned act that could happen and, and you're actually allowed to do this, you wouldn't have any of these worries. This is the whole point. But the other thing you've got to think about is what if it goes wrong? Like you could have this, this failed suicide attempt that actually leaves you worse off physically with more organ damage or whatever. Um, or you could end up in a psych ward being assessed for seven days or whatever it is. And, or even if you did it in the family home and something went wrong, you know, what would be the repercussions then? Because Becky would have to call the ambulance and then potentially the police are involved and it's just a nightmare. So no matter which way you look, there's a terrible arithmetic here. There's, yeah. the, there's the progression of your disease. Mm. There's no clear or easy set of options. Mm. And many of the options that you might take carry great risk. Yes. And I, I just want the option. I want the choice. I'm not saying, you know, I would avail, of my, avail myself of it immediately. I would just love to know it's there. It's, in terms, I'm, I'm almost in a palliative care situation now, which... You know, I've only just turned 50. I've got 17 years before I even reach retirement age. Um, and so I'm looking potentially at at least 17 years of palliative care, um, just trying to keep on top of the symptoms. And I, I'd just like that to be part of my palliative care options. And I think just knowing that it was there would be palliative in itself. It would be such a comfort, Andrew. I can't tell you... Um, and I've even heard that a lot of people with the option don't use it. It's just this wonderful comfort to know it's there. Laurie is right. In Oregon, for example, I discovered that more than 30% of terminally ill people prescribed life-ending medicine ultimately chose not to take it. I now want to do the impersonation of a very patronising human being and say to you, Laurie, are you sure you're not just depressed? This is a funny argument because what are we saying? Only, only a happy person can terminate their life? Um, <laughs> or are we saying you can't be depressed in order to end your life, but by very, very definition, if you want to end your life, you must be depressed, so therefore you can't end your Catch-22. Yeah. But to my mind, if someone's got a terminal illness or they've got a chronic illness and they're in incredible psychological or physical distress that the doctors can't address. Um, and that person was happy and not depressed or anxious. That in itself would be the mental illness. That would be, to me, what is unusual. Yeah. But I think once we have the process up and running, the process will filter out people who are just simply depressed and who could benefit from treatment rather than ending their life because that's, that's the thing with suicide. A lot of people who suicide are, are in the moment, they can't see a way out and they're not being addressed. But if they had somewhere where they could go and say, look, I'd, I'd like to end my life because I'm in, I'm in chronic, chronic turmoil, then I, you know, hopefully we'd filter those people out. Again, Laurie is right. In Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon, simply being able to talk openly with your doctor about wanting help to die immediately leads to questions about why. If mental illness is thought to be a significant factor, then by law, psychiatric help must be sought. As a consequence, lives that might have been lost to suicide are saved.
When people like Kevin Yule say, "Suicide's legal. Why do you need assistance to do something that you can do yourself?" What they're really arguing is that to help Laurie die, even at Laurie's request, would be a moral failure by the rest of us to protect society's vulnerable. Yet who could be more vulnerable than Laurie, a man with a degenerative and cruel illness for which there is no cure and no effective treatment, and who seeks the option of a compassionate way out should he choose? There are thousands of people like Laurie in Australia today, chronically and terminally ill people of all ages, from whom our politicians continue to turn away. Too many of them ultimately take Kevin Yule's advice and end their lives violently and alone because they see no end to their suffering under our current laws. Even so, Laurie remains hopeful that Australia won't always be like this. Australia has led the world in so many. Um, socially progressive ways. People from all over the planet want to flock to live here. We've got something special, and we had the first voluntary euthanasia laws in the world, in the Northern Territory, and it was squashed. And yet, the majority of Australians want this. They want to talk about it. There, are, Europe has laws. America has laws. I think South American countries have laws. Canada's High Court has just, you know, determined that it's a basic right,、um, and you know, I feel sad for our country because we used to be at the forefront of social progress and we're lagging behind now.、Um, but I think it will be inevitable. And just why make it so difficult? <laughs> people are suffering, you know. You know, people can't wait for this. You know, I can,、uh, you know. But there's others who are in desperate circumstances who would love to avail themselves of this. You know, tomorrow, if they could. If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter dot com slash betteroffdead. Next episode, after travelling around Australia and overseas seeking the truth about assisted dying, I go back to where this journey began and sit down with Paul Russell, founder and director of the Hope Anti Euthanasia Coalition. Who'd invited me to attend their international convention in Adelaide earlier in the year? I'd left the convention armed with all sorts of dark warnings about what's happening in places where laws for assisted dying exist. Now, several months later, I'm keen to take him through what I've learned to hear how he responds. Twelve angels from the north, twelve angels from the south, twelve angels from the east. Twelve angels from the west. Ooh, ooh. Better off dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com/betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe, and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels lighting on your shoulders, east and west, north and south.